economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant-elect for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel, chair of economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right, well, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, legislation in the pipeline nowadays, and so we wanted to take a look at this Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, uh, reading straight from the democrats.senate.gov website. There's a one-page summary, and this will be a historic down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation and domestic energy production and manufacturing and reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. The bill will also finally allow Medicare to negotiate those prescription drug prices and extend the expanded Affordable Care Act program for three years through 2025. So there's going to be $300 billion left over that they can also reduce the deficit by. Pretty exciting if all this came together. And they're closing that deficit by plugging a 15% corporate minimum tax and uh, the prescription drug pricing is the lion's share of tax revenue coming in to cover this proposed $433 billion worth of spending. So I tried to keep from chuckling as I went through it. I think I did a pretty good job. Um, Peter, you think this thing's gonna work? Well, it depends on what you mean by work. I think that uh, some politicians, constituents might end up happy. I'm sure uh, Manchin's getting a pretty good deal out of this. But in terms of reducing inflation, I don't think it has anything to do with inflation at all, really. Some people might hypothesize it'll increase inflation because of increased spending. I'm not sure about that because when you increase taxes, you take spending from some people and give it to other people. So I'm not exactly sure if it would increase or decrease inflation. I'd have to think about it a little bit. But it certainly won't reduce inflation. It, our inflation has been driven, and we've talked about this in podcasts before, but, but mostly by our monetary policy. You can see if you look from January of 2020 to today, our money supply, as measured by something called M2, if you Google M2SL, uh, Federal Reserve, you can see a nice little graph that shows... In short, currency, checking accounts, yeah. savings accounts. Yeah, uh, the money ways, that around. Ways we yeah, yeah. pay for things. Basically, our money supply uh, almost uh, increased by 50%. I, it was a pretty large increase, a little bit less than that uh, in the last two years. And when you print a bunch of money and you hand the money out to various people, those people spend the money and that drives a product crisis. And this is what's at the root of everything. And, uh, you know, taxing and spending isn't going to change this underlying thing that's happened. So, yeah, uh, it, it has nothing to do with inflation reduction. It's my first pass. And I think what we're starting to find is that the uh, I can't remember what economists said this originally. I remember it in graduate school that uh, unfortunately driving the economy is not like driving a sports car where you turn to the right and you've got a pretty quick response of the wheels and turning to the right. It's more like driving one of those, uh, you know, two football field long barges and you turn to the right and then about two miles down the road, you start turning right. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we're seeing some of that lag. Um, even I've been a little surprised that uh, the moves of the Fed, even in the last two months, uh, three months, really 
hasn't put a dent in inflation yet. Yeah. So yeah, that so and by the way, listeners, uh, you might it's inflation still might fall over the next few months. I'm sure this is something that if this bill passes, they'll take credit for. Uh, but it's fallen if it falls, it's because of what Russ just said. We're finally for the first time in almost a decade, basically, with a few little exceptions. And the, for the first time in almost a decade, we've reduced the money supply uh, by a little bit. And so it's it's a tiny drop down. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, overall, it's increased a, a huge amount, but we've had finally a little decrease uh, because we've hiked interest rates. So Yeah. And so to have uh, two things working at the same time always causes problem with analyzing it afterwards. It'd be a little cleaner from a scientist standpoint if if only the Fed's hiking interest rates was the thing that and we could see, you know, of course, there's always lots of things moving, but um, at least reduce the fiscal policy effort. Yeah, but what does help us understand what's the driver here is the theory, right? Like we have an underlying theory that connects increases in money supply to increases in prices. We have no theory that connects whatever this bill is doing with decreases in prices. It's just not, not something that... Uh, you know, is clear at all why this should address the problem. But this follows a long, you know, line of American tradition of naming a bill to be the opposite of what it actually does, right? Yeah. Uh, the Patriot Act and now the inflation rate. Well, I mean, an, an increase in taxes, this corporate tax, if it if it's significant um, in the in the short term, would reduce uh, businesses doing activity, reduce aggregate demand, and and cause a, a slight reduction in in uh, inflation. The, la- la- the length of time that that would take. And then, of course, it misses out on the uh, that they're not going to be um, doing as much activity. I'm actually not sure on that because it depends on where the tax revenue revenue goes. And so if government hands the tax revenue out to someone with a larger marginal propensity to consume or whatever than the businesses had, then actually you could increase inflation. That's why like government spending and inflation is always a little bit tricky to me. It depends on who you're taking it from and who you're giving it to. But I think the point is that there's no clear connection there. It could end up that way. Russ is right, by the way. You could shut, slow down businesses so much. Imagine a 100% tax. All businesses would shut down. We're pretty close to it. Uh, and that would definitely kill inflation, but it would also... Yeah, uh, and the, their their argument being uh, their increase in taxes is going to be uh, heavier than the increase in spending. Yeah, yeah of and course. So, and then the deficit and using it for deficit reduction which probably is a joke for the yeah. most part. Um, that just doesn't happen, especially on the Democratic side. But uh, they're, they're going to try to champion one of their uh, philosophies of tax the rich and increase spending and do deficit reduction all in one nice little package. But history tells us it probably won't shake out that way exactly. Justin, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I know they're giving $80 billion to the IRS so that they can hire 87,000 new agents. Um, And the upshot of that is supposed to be uh, 1.2 million new audits. Okay. Um, So this, um, this, this should really just bring home to the American people that in the eyes of the government, like you are the enemy. They are hiring more IRS agents to come and harass you. Those 1.2 million audits, those are going to hit the middle class for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this idea that, uh, well, uh, you know, we gave out, you know, we we gave $80 billion to Ukraine to help them fight this war. We gave a billion dollars to, uh, you know, uh, have the FDA try to uh, decrease vaccine hesitancy by putting out these 
asinine ads. Um, we've printed money um, out, you know, out the wazoo for the last three years, but really uh, when the problems come around, what we need to do is hire some more tax cops to go after the average citizen. And that's, a, that's what this bill is going to do. Yeah, um, and I agree with Justin. I want to highlight for listeners why it's the case. Justin's right. This is going to affect mostly the middle class. And it's not just a numbers thing. It's not just because we have mostly middle class. There, there's two reasons. So if you look at the poorer side of the spectrum, it's generally considered bad practice by the IRS to audit people who are poor. And so there's lots of fraud on what's called the earned income tax credit. Uh, but the IRS, because of, you know, uh, probably actually like relatively decent reasons, don't go after the poor in terms of audits, basically. Hmm. And again, I, I'm actually OK with that. You know, if someone's really poor, I don't I, I would not be in favor of auditing more poor people. So I'm fine with that. On the other end of the spectrum, we have rich people. The IRS knows that rich, rich people basically have their taxes done within the rules, uh, now, there's lots of loopholes that they take advantage of and all that stuff. But if you have a tax attorney who's doing all your stuff, they're right. not going to mess up, really, no. uh, which means that auditing them is just going to be a waste of everyone's time. Yeah. And so if you want to successfully audit someone and you don't want a whole lot of backlash for going after poor people, then what you do is you audit the rest of the people. And well, that's the middle class. So the, all the money that's on the table for the IRS to get via audits is in the middle class's bank accounts, right? Uh, so yeah, that, I I agree with Justin. Uh, this is exactly the target. Uh, there there's no uh, illusion here that it could be any anyone else. Yeah. Well, and what do you think about the prescription drug hit down? So it sounds like they're going to uh, allow them to negotiate, use their power, market power. So because of Medicare and Medicaid, I assume that where they're coming from with this is that they'll be able to now uh, leverage that buying power uh, to negotiate better prices, i.e. force better prices, which to me, long term then would be not very good incentives for those folks to develop more prescription drugs if they're not able to recapture some of that. Um, and I wonder how many assumptions are built into the model of how much money they're going to save on prescription drugs from better negotiations. People who are on Medicare and Medicaid already know this. Doctors already don't want to accept patients who have Medicare and Medicaid because of the government's, how difficult it makes the government, how difficult the government makes it to take those people in as patients and get revenue and dealing with stuff like that. I mean, in order to take Medicare and Medicaid, you have to have like an army of people uh, who understand the program. And so like, if you have a, a local doctor in town, it's it's really like against his incentives or her, her incentives to, to take on patients with Medicare and Medicaid. Sometimes they do anyways. Uh, but the point is, Medicare and Medicaid is already a nightmare. People already don't want to deal with it. Uh, now, it might be a little bit different with drug companies. In fact, I, I'd be surprised if drug companies could say, no, we're not going to take Medicare and Medicaid for our drugs. I doubt that that's probably something they can do. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, the more you do this, yeah, Russ, you're right, the more cost you're imposing on these drug makers. And I, I just don't see in the long run this making any significant dent either. Um, I don't see politicians having like a severe incentive to really help people get more affordable drugs. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't really understand what the it's all about. I guess this is some way they could say, oh, lowering prices. Yeah, because people think inflation and think a lower so. price are the same thing, even though they're not. Yeah, yeah. That would be part of it, I think. Well, the big share of their spending bill of the 440, $433 billion is $369 billion on energy security and climate change. So once again, we're back to the table of the spending that they are doing are going towards those efforts, which I heard on some news. Uh, well, that's going to create jobs, so that's good. 
uh, and, <laughs> and but let's talk about maybe jobs uh, uh, disappearing in other sectors, other energy sectors and other unused resources and unused capacity. If there's any lesson that we learned from coronavirus, it's that government funding of science is just not a very good idea. I know that it's still up in the air or whatever, but there's pretty significant evidence that coronavirus came from a lab leak uh, in a U.S. government-funded lab uh, in China. Is there a scientific development over the last 20 years that has uh, provided as much benefit as coronavirus gave cost to society? I doubt it. So th there's this sort of weird question where it's like, would we have been better off for the last 20 years if we hadn't funded any science at all? We shut down every research university, all this stuff uh, would have had significant impacts. But what's our coronavirus, you know, dead count hitting? I don't know. It's over a million now across the world. Uh, have we provided over a million lives worth of benefit from the last 20 years of scientific funding? I'm sure, you know, if you look back 100 years, the answer is maybe yes, but I'm not so sure. So I have no interest in funding scientists to, you know, search out cures for global warming, because all I know is they're going to try to generate it in a little bottle. It's going to explode and kill everyone. You know, <laughs> I, I just don't have any interest. Justin, what are your thoughts? Look, uh, it's it's impossible to have a discussion about, um, you know, reducing carbon emissions with people who don't take nuclear seriously. Um, and uh, the problem right now is that uh, we have sources of energy that are uh, reliable and are you know safe to operate. Um, coal, fossil fuels, nukes all fall into this category. Um, there is no way to make um, so-called renewables any cheaper um, in terms of the cost of production. So what the government can do and what they will do when they talk about spending money on renewables um, is that they will uh, either siphon money and pump those into renewables, which are on their own inefficient at competition in the marketplace. That's one thing they can do. They can throw uh, money at an inefficient um, process, or they can raise the cost of fossil fuels um, in, by um, taxes um, and regulation. And so the idea that uh, the way we combat inflation is to raise the price of energy production, that's <laughs> insane. Um, yeah, at the same time, they're talking about the monstrous profits that these big gas companies are making and that these prices are too high it's their fault and they need to lower these prices while trying to fight climate change and raise the prices it's almost like a back and forth argument that is running around in a circle well and we we don't have we have good competition in those markets so i'm really not worried about uh, a back room full of CEOs, uh, five CEOs of oil uh, colluding to keep prices high. They they scrap for every dollar with their fuel. And so there's good competition. So the price we see is a competitive price. And I don't think there's any excess profits going on. Uh, it just there's enough competition in that market. They're selling identical goods, guys, right? I mean, there's no differentiation between Chevron yeah. and, and the other place. So I always sit back as an economist and say, I'm not worried about that market with an identical good and yeah. Uh, competition. Yeah, well, one of the mistakes that is made by the public at large and probably intentionally by politicians is like you can look at something called accounting profit, which is your like bottom line in your business that you would report to the IRS or something and say, oh, look, this business is making a lot of profits. 
accounting profit is not a measure of like actual profit. And, and by actual profit, I mean the value you get for being in an industry above being in any other industry. Right. Like that, that's a good way maybe to think of economic yeah. profit is yeah. that uh, kind of it's, abnormal profit. It's possible, in other words, to be in an industry where your reported profit is five million, but if it were one dollar lower, you would leave for a different industry. Like that—that <laughs> that is literally possible. Right. right. And so the the point is that there, what are excess profits? We actually don't know, and we shouldn't pretend to know. Uh, and it, no. It's kind of a silly game that uh, our authorities uh, yeah. Yeah, play yeah. in the antitrust and stuff like that. All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap for the first half. When we come back, I want to tackle a little bit more of the energy and security climate change policies. Uh, they they say it's going to uh, improve uh, emissions by 40%. I want to call that into question in a big way. So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. The Gordon Institute is offering free economics classes to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. Uh, in these classes, we'll cover things like scarcity, supply and demand, and some common economic fallacies. We're running through our first course right now, the first section with students, and they're really enjoying it. If you're interested in having a class for yourself or one of your children, uh, please contact Peter, Justin, or us today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit the Gortney page on the Ottawa website. All right, so I wanted to go back to this 40% reduction in emissions. So I had to look it up, but approximately 28% of global emissions are in pollution, however that's phrased, is due to the United States. So we have a, uh, what is that, a whopping 72%, uh, mainly coming from India and China and the rest of the world, uh, especially developing countries. So when you hear a statistic like 40%, I think it's misleading in that we're somehow going to be curbing global problems of pollution by 40%, but rather what we're going to be doing is spending 369 billion or whatever that number was and uh, reducing our own by 40%. So if we're 28%, that's roughly a 12% reduction. So we'd be going for globally, we'd be potentially putting a dent by 12%, which is probably a stretch. But to me, that doesn't pass the cost-benefit analysis sniff test for me. Um, on top of 
uh, the things we've already talked about with rising fossil fuel prices and other things that will happen as a result of yeah. subsidizing these other activities. So for me, it doesn't even come close to cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, and like you mentioned, Russ, it won't even hit 12%. Uh, there's a good book written by Hans-Werner Sinn called The Green Paradox. And what he points out in that is most uh, most policies which restrict people's consumption of, for example, fossil fuels, uh, those policies won't actually reduce emissions on a global level because when you decrease, for example, Americans' demands for fossil fuels, that lowers the price. That lower price allows people in China and India, for to example, more yeah, to, to buy more. To uh, buy you, more. You, increase, you increase other dom- domesticities, other countries' yeah. uh, demands yeah. when you decrease your own. And so uh, it actually... Honestly, the, the elasticities could be such that we would actually lead to an increase in emissions mm-hmm. from that. But it's anything from, uh, you know, 12% is the absolute maximum. Would be the max, holding all other things constant. Yeah, which all, all the way up to possibly an increase. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, there's no thought into this. This is just uh, the yeah. window dressing. And that is the lion's share of the spending is yeah. the, you know, that's that's their thing with the the green revolution and green policies that they're that they're promoting. So you wanted to expand on tax code and uh, let's bring a little faith component. How long is that tax code compared to the Bible, uh, Peter? Yeah, well, I was looking at this <laughs> after the break. You know, the one of the issues is that the IRS is trying to, like I mentioned, increase enforcement of taxes. And you might think, well, I do everything by the book, so I'm okay. Uh, but you're probably not, actually. Uh, you probably have made, you listeners at home, some mistakes on your taxes. And if you don't think so, uh, consider this. The tax code by itself is well over 100,000 words long. Uh, for comparison's sake, that's longer than the Bible. Uh, it's you know longer than uh, the whole Harry Potter series put together. Uh, and that's just the statutes. There's also case law and regulations. When you add up all that, actually, you get like what well over 700 or well over 70,000 pages. So the tax code is too long for you to read. You're probably in violation of some of it, yeah. uh, oh, sure. unless you are, you know, uh, relatively poor, which, you know, some people are. And so th- th- that's one way out. Or if you're really rich and you have an accountant whose job it is to know exactly what's in those 70,000 pages. Yeah. Right? And that's some, some of the problems with a rules-based approach versus principles-based approach. Uh, the, the Bible is uh, very principled. Of course, there's there's some rules, but then we have grace kind of trumping some of those rules that we can't seem to follow due to sin. And I can't remember what passage it is, but it, uh, in the uh, Christian Bible, I guess, just to kind of clarify between New and Old Testament and other versions that come along, no words shall be added to this to this text, yeah. right? This the, is it. The last verse of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, what you have is what you get, and uh, they haven't changed it for a couple thousand years, whereas the tax code, of course, is getting revised and added and amended to yeah. uh, year after year after year well, with uh, rules and loopholes to close loopholes and so forth. Yeah, another example is uh, in Luke chapter 10, there's the famous like exchange between Jesus and the, the scribe, and the scribe says, well, what commands the greatest and Jesus said, oh, what do you say? And he said, well, love God and love your neighbor, which basically there's this great summary rule that explains all the other rules. And the guy tries to be pedantic and say, who's my neighbor? That's a different story. But uh, the point is, it really like the, the, those, you know, uh, all the Bible's books can be condensed to those two things. The IRS is not that way. Uh, it, it's not <laughs> like if you know have two rules of thumb, you've got the entire tax code down. It's no, especially if you, if you are like a small business owner, not rich yourself, the amount of 
the tax burden. law that you have to understand to have like a corporation in your name and oh how do i not break the veil of the corporation and you know yeah. make my it's a nightmare uh yeah. it, it, it's it's so beyond the time of one person uh it, it and so basically the point is that there's two ways to raise taxes which i mentioned earlier one is to increase rates you could make it a higher middle class tax rate and the irs is not doing or the the bill is not doing that it's only increasing the tax rates of people making more than four hundred thousand. So then what Democrats are saying is, oh, this only increases taxes on the rich. More than $400,000 is rich. That sounds right to me. Great. The problem is, like we talked about earlier, if you increase enforcement on the entire middle class, you are going to increase the amount of money you collect from them because people can't learn 70,000 page tax codes and case law and statutes. And that's going to bring in revenue. In fact, they're planning on it bringing in revenue. And so this is a middle class tax increase. They're not changing the rates, but the rate's not the only way that you increase taxes. You can increase taxes by having more enforcement and collecting more money. Yeah. Well, and a, a chunk of this bill was the 15, raising the corporate minimum tax to 15%. I heard one yeah. senator, in fact, Manchin. Joe Manchin, yeah. uh, commenting that, well, I didn't even know that some weren't paying, you know, the 15% after the reduction of, uh, during the Trump era yeah. uh, of corporate uh, taxes. And so uh, the thing for listeners not to forget is that all these taxes get shared between the consumers and the owners of these corporations. And by the way, a lot of regular people are owners of these corporations through their 401k and their profit sharing and uh, other uh, ways that they uh, save for long-term investing. I mean, you're an owner of some of these big corporations as well, big and small corporations. And so whenever a tax is imposed, that's going to be a cost to the business. And that cost, to some extent, is going to get passed along to the consumers of those goods. Yeah. Another way to say this is that there's no such thing as corporations. Uh, and what I mean by that is like a corporation cannot pay a tax. At the end of the day, corporations are made up of people. I know people really hate the, oh, corporations are people. You don't have to think that, but corporations are made up of people. So the corporation doesn't get less money people in the corporation get less money. Yeah. And that could be wages too for that yes, matter. It's yeah. wages for workers. It's uh, pay for managers and CEOs, which by the way, Democrats are probably happy with that. And, you know, fair enough. So they might lose some money too. And it's also owners of the corporations, which you might think, oh, those are the really rich people. But again, no, if this is a publicly traded company and you have a 401k, congratulations, you're the owner of a company and you're losing money. Yeah. So it, there, there's no, we're not, getting the ultra rich right. uh, we're getting everybody involved with the corporation that includes you yeah not uh, to mention that it also kills the incentive for those who are really efficient and hard-working business owners and the higher ups within these businesses the incentive it's going to create is for them to move to a country with less regulation and less tax yeah or uh make businesses less efficient by going on more fancy vacations right uh one way you can lower yeah. your profits quote quote unquote, is you can uh, do a retreat in the Bahamas. Yeah, not uh, watch your expenses as yeah. tightly as you might otherwise. And by the way, that listeners, and we're, we're getting kind of far into left field, but that's a transfer from the owners, which again, are these kind of like retiree 401k holders to the CEO who we think of as the ultra rich. So this is a regressive uh, effect. But Just to uh, hammer on to that point you made about this actually being a tax increase a little bit too. I mean, we are used to the government redefining terms uh, to suit its purposes, right? They'll Light change recession. the definition of uh, vaccine, herd immunity, or the one that they're arguing about right now, recession, right? Whether <laughs> Are we in a recession or not? And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a classic move of theirs to say, to just define words the way they want them, want them um, and the way that's expedient, that it takes an enormous amount of chutzpah 
to in the same bill um, claim that it both is and is not a tax increase, right? If we're um, if we're looking at the money it's bringing in, oh well, then it is a tax increase. But if uh, you know, then if you want to talk about uh, trying to sell it to the public, then it's not. And to try to have it both ways in the very same bill is just uh, argumentatively egregious. Yeah. Luke, you had something on the, the ESG. Tell us what that is. I think that comes back to this uh, environment and uh, uh, environmental aspect of this bill. Yeah, the ESG is the environmental social governance. Um, basically, ESG is the government's way of incentivizing corporations and people to get more green type of products. But the there's like the green premiums where if you're trying to get a green type of product, it's going to cost more because it costs more to, to make it that way. But then, so it seems like with this tax bill, they're trying to increase taxes or increase the cost uh, for consumers to get these cheaper types of energy. So the green products seem more appealing. Yeah. And it seems to be wrapped up, <clears throat> excuse me, into uh, kind of a scoring system of some sort, right? Yeah. So you can kind of envision that uh, people with better scores, let's call it the ESG score, which is is out there. I, I saw after we listened to somebody speak one time about Merrill Lynch, was it? I think it was Merrill Lynch having ESG score and people kind of walking around like, oh, this is great. I'm I'm more, what's your environmental score? Look at, I'm a seven and you're a six and that means I'm better than you type of thing. Uh, but now it could all of a sudden be tied into policy that reduces your taxes or gets you a subsidy and uh, further and further increases government power on your individual life. Uh, this is this is going on in China right now with their social credit scoring system. We've we've kind of done some previous podcasts on that. Uh, but I, I think this is a, another dangerous area on our liberty to to get into. If we get into, it might start with companies being scored right to get preferential treatment. And then they're like, oh, we should do this for individuals. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Just so to clarify, ESG is a concept. Let's start there. In, in other words, like there's this concept floating around that let's rank businesses based on how well they deal with the environment, uh, how well they deal with social issues and how like equitably they are related to governance, uh, both within the company and without the company. And there's different companies which try to create ESG scores. So there's not like one e official ESG. Uh, there's, sure. there's different uh, companies yeah. out there that try to, yeah, at this point. <laughs> there, there's basically several companies jockeying to have the official ESG score. Sort of like there's several companies that give credit scores, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you, you can think of it as very similar to that. Right. And the government, insofar as the government is interested in enforcing environmental policies or, you know, social... Uh, norms, things like that, they utilize and basically prop up these companies who create ESG scores. So it's not, uh, I, I just want to clarify that it's not a, a government invention or- yeah. uh, It's in the, the early stages. Yeah, I would say it's more It's more from, I mean, if, if we want to you know, go down this road of saying who's responsible, it's like the, the, the societal elites have yeah. created this. At, at this point, it's probably in the realm, if I'm understanding you correctly, where I'm comfortable with that a private company is trying to signal, maybe it's virtue signaling or otherwise, that hey, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm the green one. Look at me, come buy my stuff. If it stays private without other and people can voluntarily 
choose to purchase from that company or not, I, I think I'm all right with that. But Justin is once again going to correct me here real fast. I just think you can easily see where this is going. And uh, I think you're going to negotiate yourself into a really bad position <laughs> rather than uh, just saying no from the get-go. Um, yeah, but but Justin, we can't have a free market. I mean, if it is truly a free owner of a company that you know doesn't have strings attached, at least at this point, to any government benefit, uh, subsidy, or, or preference, then if if that business chooses to want to advertise themselves as a green and healthy company and that works for them and maximizes profits for them, I, I can't I can't stop that proact I don't want to stop that proactively. I, they should have the freedom to do that. I, I think you, I think in practice there's uh you're gonna find out and maybe this is what Peter was going to say too, because I've heard him make this point that it's it actually becomes very difficult to disentangle the state from um these large extremely large corporations that are all tied up with, you know, yeah. the security state. You're and saying so, that it's, uh, it's already, the idea is already stemming because of the previous entanglement. Yes. Uh, that's, yeah. uh, it's, it, it is, you know, it's conceived entangled. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could buy that. Now, I don't know what that means moving forward. Are you suggesting that when the new conservative uh, Congress uh, gets elected here in the midterms that they should move towards making it a law that they can't do that that they know. can't create an esg score no <laughs> um, i'm just wondering what yeah, dictator um, justin wants to do here in terms of a new law to keep this from happening my my policy is always to avoid power so i'll never be uh, i think it, <laughs> it's totally corrupting but um yeah if if you put me in power I'd, i would want to um you know erect a kind of firewall between any kind of social credit score and um, any governmental agency. And even, even institutions that, um, that themselves are entangled with um, the federal government itself. So uh, maybe this even constitutes like, I don't know, I, I would be open to prohibiting even banks from utilizing an ESG score. Um, yeah, and, and I, but again, I, I think you would probably agree with me that we'd have to go to the source of the problem. Like what caused this entanglement prior to even thinking of coming up with an ESG score and basically reduce cronyism, right? Policies that somehow strip the state out of uh, business activity uh, little by little. It's not going to happen overnight. You can't turn that, but uh, uh, little changes from the status quo would move us that direction. So just, I think Justin's got a good point. I actually was, was going to go in a different direction though, I, because it was largely based on something I said I in the past and Justin and I talked about. I, I agree with Justin, just what Justin just said, but I'll also say another reason why I am like very slow to say something like, oh, but they're private actors and they can do what they want. Um, you know, let's imagine like a satanic child sacrifice score or something like that. You know, they're not actually doing the sacrifice, but they're just scoring people and they're putting it out there. And, you know, am I going to spend any time defending this? And the, the answer is no, I never will. Even if, by the way, even if there's that old, is it Jefferson? I don't know who the quote is. I, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend it. It's not Jefferson. I'll okay. defend it. To death. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry, the philosopher person. Yeah, yeah. I'll defend to the death. You're right to say it. Uh, and I'm like, kind of like, eh, you know, not really because like I have better things to do. Right. Like there's lots of things in the world to defend and there's an opportunity cost to defending the satanic child sacrifice score. And I'd rather defend <laughs> liberty in a different sector. And so if someone wants to start going after ESG scores, 
I'm not even going to bother talking about it. Uh, if someone's going, if a legislator is going to come out and say you can't use ESG to score people getting loans, I'm not going to spend any time fighting that because, frankly, there's way worse things in the world to spend time on. Uh, it's it's not worth my time. Even a comment, you could say, oh, but you could defend two things at once. No, not at the same time. I can't. Uh, there's better things in the world to defend. I'm not interested in defending the satanic child sacrifice score. I assume Russ isn't either. I'm not interested in defending ESG scores either from like aggression. I'd rather defend uh, worthwhile causes from aggression. So that that's my my other thought on it. This uh, ESG score really would be a small business killer too. Because if you think about it, what are those businesses going to be ranked based on how well they're providing and limiting their emissions for the environment? They can't do a lot because they don't have a lot of funds to do so. Only these big corporations can. So it really does turn into just this big cronyism argument. Yeah, I, I do think uh, I, I I think it's a rent rent seeking game. I think that's basically what's going on here. And uh, I, I, I do respect Russ's opinion that I think we have to be careful uh, legislating on things that we think might be rent seeking opportunities, because like, are we to say then, oh, you can't use credit scores, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you can make this the same argument that, oh, credit scores, that's just a way to see if people's approved finances or the way that society expects them to be or something like we could do that argument too yeah so i i am reluctant to ever like call for legislation on anything uh but i'm also reluctant to defend like something is uh what i think stupid is is esg or, or malevolent or whatever it is yeah so yeah all right well any other last words this looks like a pretty good spot to bring this one to a close all right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Please give us a five-star rating. Helps other people find us if you like what we have to say and uh, pass the word that way. We also have a donate button on our Gortney Institute website. So if you'd like to continue hearing what we do, uh, please consider a contribution. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.